the one where, um, like, Voldemort and Dumbledore have a huge fight in the Ministry of Magic at the end, which I think the climax of this film is actually really great. Like, I love that fight. And, and also, actually, more importantly, Harry and Voldemort have a genuine mental duel, I want to say. Um, yeah, and kind of Harry asserts himself in that, right? Which which I think is actually very important in terms of, like... I think it's a great scene, and I think it's like a sort of really important kind of for for Harry, right? Um, but yeah, what did you guys think? Did you guys how how do you guys remember this film? Like how how does it stack up to your memory? And do you guys have the same issue as I do, where like I often get confused between the plot of this film and a and some of the other films? Who who? Anna John go. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Like with all the other films, you could possibly summarize them into sentences if you wanted to and you'd be struggling to with this one um, as you were at the beginning of the podcast because there's no central sort of plot driving it. What I think this film is trying to do is it's trying to establish the warring factions. Um, You know, there's Voldemort's side, which is the Death Eaters and they are now marked by their the the snake swirling whatever it is, the snake swirling um (laughs) on their arms and you know they look very much like the evil baddies um they also wear masks um you know and you you can get up to much crueler and more terrible things behind the mask of anonymity so that's them and then you've got the order of the phoenix also a secretive society no masks though um and they are kind of the other side right the auras And then in the middle of that, you've got the ministry. And the ministry is kind of up for grabs because whether the ministry is good or bad kind of just depends on who's in it. Like Mm. Dolores is part of the ministry and, you know, it's terrible. So I think it's just setting up the sides, right? There's Voldemort and then who is the other side? We're giving them like a bit of a name and an identity, like the Auras and the Order of the Phoenix. Um, And we're kind of meeting some of the, the key members, which is fun. You know, it's enjoyable. Um, I also think that rather than being plot-driven, this movie is kind of thematically driven, Mm. where Mm. I think what they're trying, like one of the key messages seems to be, look, we all have a little bit of, not so much evil, but we all have a dark side to us. You know, we might all be quick to anger, or we might feel, you know, jealous of our friends, or, you know, we, we might have qualities that... Um, you know, are morally questionable or far from, you know, lightness and good. But it's kind of, it's, it is the fact that in addition to those qualities, we have the other side to us, you know, the ability to love, the ability to make friends and everything that involves, you know, trusting other people even when it's difficult to do that, um, giving someone the benefit of the doubt even when that's hard, um, for, you know, apologising, accepting apologies, all of these things that allow you to have friendships. These things set us a, a, apart from people who are, like, considered truly evil or, or from forces mm. of true evil. And Harry kind of goes on that journey kind of metaphorically as well, as well as, you know, figuratively, as, as well as... um. Is it? Is it figuratively? Yes. In this um, movie, because not only is he going through that journey of, um, you know, his friends lose trust in him, but he has to forgive them and agree to teach them in the end. Um, but 
and he has to trust them and bring them along with him and not try to do everything by himself, even though that requires allowing them to put their lives in danger and all of that. But he's also asking himself, like, am I the same as Voldemort? Like, how yeah. am I different? Because he's starting to see through his eyes. So that's the that's the metaphorical kind of aspect where they're almost becoming the one person. But it's really more a question of don't we all have these traits as well? These, you know, less than less than good you know, kind of bad kind of traits. Um, yeah. But Voldemort just doesn't have the good side. So this this movie is kind of trying to, t- to tell us, you know, what makes us human is that we can balance both of those things and we have that capacity for love and friendship um, as well. So I think the movie is kind of driven by that. In terms of the, the plot aspect, I think it failed. It could have been better, right? The, the, there was plot there. Like, they could have made it more obvious what the prophecy was and why it's so important, and they could have given it a little bit more of a, a thrilling aspect of how we're just desperate to hear it for some reason or, mm. you know, because they were, it was so secretive, I think it was hard to know what the hell was going on around the prophecy, you know? Like, I think if they'd made it more clear that what's-her-face, the teacher, the, the hopeless, like, prophecy teacher, the tea, the tea leaves... Yeah. Um, Trelawney. Trelawney. Her name, Sybil. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So Sybil had a prophecy. This prophecy was foretold the bringing down of Voldemort. It foretold his demise, but it wasn't completely clear. It wasn't clear who the prophecy was referring to. It could have been Harry, but it could have been Neville. Voldemort chose Harry, he thought it must mean Harry, he went there to kill Harry for that reason, you know, and, you know, if it kind of, and if it kind of, you know, implied that what if, that, that Harry might have to die, you know, as, as it does in the books, you're kind of concerned Harry might have to die. If all of that stuff was brought out, we might have cared a little bit more about the prophecy, whereas it's so in and out in flashes in this movie that you don't care about it. You don't realise how important it is. It seems like a sideshow. And given that that is the main plot device, it's kind of weird that they they did it that way. Yeah, Um, agreed. Dolores is... Yeah, because Dolores is such a strong force in this show, it becomes the Dolores movie instead of, you know, anything else. And I actually thought she was more evil and more difficult to watch than Voldemort himself, you know. Voldemort is very cartoon character evil, but there's just something about Dolores which is just so uncomfortably cruel and sinister and like manipulative and you can almost imagine someone in real life getting away with this kind of behavior and it is terrifying and i find it really hard like it was very fidgety throughout this movie because i found it very hard to know that her scenes were coming and the things she was going to do and just just the cruelty of it all so yeah look i liked it it was good um i completely agree with what you said that it's kind of weird that there isn't a strong plot running through this um may yeah maybe we could have said the same for the first movie because let's face it the philosopher's stone was a MacGuffin. (laughs) 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 the prophecy means something in this one um but yeah look i enjoyed lots of aspects of it i loved the house i loved the angry house elf who just absolutely hates these people but he has to serve for them (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, yeah. 
Hmm, interesting. Like, I think you bring bring up a good point. Like, I I think you put very eloquently there, Anuja, the central um, theme of this film. I was gonna. I, I reflected actually that like, it's actually the one thing that Sirius says which makes him sound mature because Sirius otherwise is just this super gung ho reckless guy, right? But then he has that one conversation with Harry, which is like. No, maybe <laughs> maybe Sirius isn't as much of an idiot as we think he is, right? Like, because he has that conversation about how we all have light and dark and stuff, right? But then... It's, he, it's not how you're the same, but how you're different. Is, is it him who says yeah. that? Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I think that was, no, that was Dumbledore. Yeah, but mm. Sirius takes Harry aside and Harry confides in Sirius. But then Sirius yeah. says something about how, you know, we all have shades of light and dark right yeah yeah. we're not all completely good or bad there's no good or bad yeah yeah Yeah. he's the one who says it's what you what you choose to act on that's what counts yeah which is very wise and feels weird coming out of Sirius's mouth because we know how reckless Sirius is. <laughs> but yeah, like it's. Um, I thought that yeah. scene was very good in building Sirius's character, who is fundamentally a good character, but also a bit of a like. Let's be honest, a bit of a buffhead, right? So. Uh, or what I thought Lupin would say than what I would expect Sirius <laughs> to say, but you know, it did good in building that father-son bond. Yeah. For, moment before yeah exactly exactly um yeah and look i I 100 agree like i mean dolores umbridge is uh an amazing villain right um but look before we go on about umbridge i'll I'll let someone else talk about umbridge right mags you want to shoot next uh yeah um so i completely agree with what you said um i also thought on you know, this, this sort of new watching of the film, it felt more like a transition movie and totally agree um, with Anager as well that it felt like the movie where they needed to introduce like new elements of the story that would be important for the next um, few films, like the different factions, the order who's in it, the different characters like Moody and um, Lupin's girlfriend. Nivadora Tonks. Yeah, Tonks. Um, and a few others who, you know, are in the next few movies. Um, I I really like Umbridge as a as a villain. She's this sort of cruel, merciless zealot, and you see that, in, you know, increasing and building with time as Fudge is trying to um, hold on and to his grasp for power, and all sort of the um, extreme means by which he wants to retain that and it sort of makes you question how different he is and how different Dolores is to Voldemort and his followers and what they're willing to do. Mm. Um, for me, the most powerful and memorable um, part of the movie um, is that theme that um, Anager described. And in particular, I think at the end when Harry is running after Bella tricks Lestrange who had killed Sirius and he uses the Cruciatus curse on her to stop her um, from escaping from the ministry. And then Voldemort appears and is kind of um, egging Harry on to to um, to kill Bellatrix and to stay angry. And you see that internal battle that he's having against those qualities of you know of goodness of um, of that you know darkness and over time 
he conquers that. And I think to me that is the most um, memorable part of the movie, that internal battle, because the moment he wins that battle, as we know he does, by choosing mercy, compassion, and then expressing his pity to Voldemort, you know that the tide has turned. And that is sort of a, a crucial moment in Harry's development as a character and in, in, in his maturing um, as a person and as a um, as um, the hero in the story. So for me, that was probably the most important part of the movie. Mm. I definitely agree with that, right? I think that scene, I think it is incredibly telling and I think it's like, you know, obviously it's deliberate, right? But like the fact that Harry says to Voldemort, he doesn't say to Voldemort, I hate you and you're such an evil like so-and-so and I'm going to kill you, right? Like, he says to him, to defeat Voldemort, he says to him, I pity you, basically, because you're never going to know love and friendship because, like, like you're so essentially because, like, you're such an evil person that you're never going to know love and friendship, right? And I pity you. I don't hate you for it. I think that's actually very, very important because it sort of sets Harry up as definitely an opposite to... Um, Voldemort, right? Like, in some ways, that the whole scene with Bellatrix and then with Voldemort, where, you know, Voldemort at one point kind of, at the end, kind of possesses Harry and Harry has to fight off that possession, right? Like, it kind of reminded me as a little bit of, like, Star Wars almost. Like, you know, like the throne room scene in Star Wars where the Emperor is there and, like, electrocuting Luke and telling him to, like, turn to the dark side. There was an element of that. But I actually think Harry Potter... I mean, I know, like, all the Star Wars fans, all my friends who love Star Wars are going to kill me for this, right? I actually think Harry Potter does it way better, right? Star Wars feels like a cartoon when it's doing it. There is much more pathos in the way Harry Potter, like, the Harry Potter films convey this. So, yeah, I, I agree. I, I think that, that end scene, not only is that, like, a really visually spectacular scene in the Dumbledore fight, but, like, really important thematically in, in why Harry and by Voldemort are fundamentally different characters as Anager and um, Mags have kind of already discussed. Um, yeah. Um, I, I kind of also just want to add, like, with Umbridge, I, I think Umbridge is such a horrible villain, but she's she's different from Vold Voldemort in that Voldemort has this sort of over-the-top evil. Like, he's kind of got this sort of world-conquering... Voldemort has this, like, delusions of world-conquering. Like, he's this arch-narcissist like, con wants to conquer the world, right? While Dolores Umbridge has almost this sort of mundane evil, where she's just, she's incredibly cruel, but, like, it's kind of like, sort of, like, that cruelty, as Anna just said, feels more real, because it's that sort of mundane, almost everyday evil, where she lords, lords over other people, sort of makes other people's lives difficult, um you know, use, abuses her power, that sort of thing. There's something much more tangible and relatable in some ways with that sort of, like, nastiness. Um, and of course, like, Umbridge visually is an amazing villain because of the contrast between this sort of prim and proper outside, but inside, obviously, incredibly self-serving and, you know, just a zealot, right, as Mags put. Like, someone who like, believes that anything is justified as long as, because she's in this position of power, and that, like, in that position of power, she has a responsibility to do all this stuff, right? Like, she's just justified in her, in her own head. 
Um, yeah. Anyway, Jerry, sorry, sorry, Jerry, I've I've rambled on for a bit. Jerry, do you want to add your thoughts? Yeah, um, I like this movie. In fact, I like it. I like it a lot, even though it is thus far the least fun of the Harry Potter movies we've seen. Um, and as I've said on a number of occasions, this was my first encounter with anything Harry Potter related, and I was confused and lost. <laughs> years that have passed, I have come to appreciate uh, this movie more. It's not my favourite in the series, but I- I've got a I've got a deep and abiding um, love for this movie because it's it's an interesting movie of two halves. The first of which is almost a political ag- allegory. Um, both the book and the movie were written uh, at the height of the Bush administration and the war on terror. And it seems to me that this movie is commenting very much on the practices of that particular administration in carrying out and prosecuting the war on terror. So we have, for instance, the movie opening with Harry being subjected to a trial where he's barely afforded a due process. Um, Dolores Umbridge is this functionary who employs torture as one of the means of getting what she wants. And one of the most difficult scenes of the movie is um, the the scene in which um, she gets Harry to write, I will not tell lies in his, um, with the magic pen that inflicts burns on him. Um, there is the use of um, state-run propaganda in the form of the Daily Prophet spewing lies about um, Harry and Dumbledore and embarking upon campaigns of character assassination in relation to individuals who are in no position to defend themselves. And um, there is the, um, the, the the hiding of the truth behind um, but seemingly benign slogans. So you've got um, Dolores basically... Um, teaching the students nothing to defend themselves against the dark arts and it's nothing it's nothing but theoretical knowledge and completely vacuous nonsense so that they are completely vulnerable and in, in that respect i think there's a there's a comment on the extent to which you know large institutions particularly at the height of the war on terror in in the period between 2003 when the book was published and 2007 when this film came out when basically you know, huge swathes of of the populations of the Western world were um, fed uh, lies uh, about not not least of which the the forces that that perpetrated um, all manner of atrocities among among them uh, 9/11, culminating in the invasion of Iraq. So, knowing full well just how political J.K. Rowling is, um, I wouldn't be surprised if all these themes running by way of political allegory in the Order of the Phoenix were intentionally seeded and were intentionally a comment upon the times in which uh, we were all then living. Um, So I've always found that part of the movie um, particularly interesting because whilst um, the villain, there is a very memorable villain in the form of Dolores Umbridge, the real villains of the show, at least in the first half of the film, is not any one person but an institution. It's the Ministry of Magic itself, um, with its various tentacles in the form of the Daily Prophet, in the form of the um, tribunal that convenes in, in the opening phase of the movie to, to adjudicate 
upon Harry's use of magic um, in the presence of Muggle. So it, it is a really, really fascinating turn for any fantasy franchise to take to say, hey, the baddies here aren't people, aren't any individuals. It's not there. It's not a case of bad apples being the baddies. The institutions themselves are fundamentally corrupt or corruptible, such that um, they are vulnerable to being, you know, infiltrated by individuals who abuse uh, their powers in extreme ways. And it's just, it's just not something you see. It's just not something you see in in fantasy franchises. In Lord of the Rings, there was very much a clear villain. Sauron was the villain, and from him did all evil flow. Whereas to, to to point the finger at an institution rather than an individual it's something faceless it's something without um about whom you cannot say this person is evil and if we get rid of him then all will be solved that's a really disturbing message to convey in basically what is a kids or teen movie mm. can, can i just add something to that jerry I, I like i think also it's interesting that like even though you're right the ministry of Mag- magic is kind of like the villain in this one right it is it's not like a sort of villainy which arises from just a desire to be evil right like the ministry of magic's uh, magic's villainy basically arises from cornelius fudge's fear that the situation is spiraling out of his control right he basically doesn't want to admit that voldemort is back he wants to put his head in the sand because he's afraid he doesn't know what's going to what's going to happen, right? He doesn't want to face the facts because he's scared of the repercussions, right? Um, so I think that's kind of interesting that basically, I mean, to your point about, look, I mean, I, I don't read the political subtext as much as you do, but like, I, I think there is an element of truth there where like, if you think about sort of 9-11 and this idea of like sort of policy being spurred on by fear, right? Like, this is absolutely what is happening in the Ministry of Magic. And he cedes power to someone like Umbridge, essentially, who is a zealot, right? He, like, even though Fudge himself is probably not as cruel as someone like Umbridge, like, his fear allows him to cede power to someone else who who does have those tendencies that the ends justify the means. Yeah. And the funny, I mean, the funny thing about Fudge's motivation in this is he perceives that that Dumbledore is coming after his job, and so he he battens down the hatches and and basically utilizes every instrument of power within the Ministry of Magic in order to protect himself. And, and as you say, this is not the villainy of someone like Voldemort who is seeking to who is seeking sort of world domination. This is this is nothing more um, more. Uh, important or more grand than power seeking to defend itself and an institution seeking to perpetuate itself in its current form and in its current configurations of power. Mm. And, and so this really is very much a movie uh, about, to use that well-worn phrase, the banality of evil. Mm. Um, the motivations of, of, of Fudge and of uh, Dolores Umbridge are ultimately deeply banal they're not they're not seeking domination they're not seeking uh to turn everyone over to the dark side they're basically just functionaries seeking to hold on to whatever power status and privilege that they have under the current set of arrangements um and again that is a really unusual thing for 
a, a fantasy franchise to to explore. I mean, this is th- these are the sorts of themes that you expect to see in in something like The Wild, not not in a Harry Potter movie, but they're there and they're not they're not particularly buried either. They're they're quite apparent in the text of the film. Mm. Uh, makes this movie so interesting to me so that's that's kind of the first half of the movie then in the second half you have um harry and his friends embark upon um this this quest and truth be told i've actually i actually think the second half of the movie whilst visually spectacular is probably less less interesting simply because it, it falls back upon more conventional um teen uh, hero fantasy tropes and we're no longer in we're no longer battling an institution but battling a very obvious individual antagonist in the form of Voldemort and look it's very very well done i i think the the, the raid on the ministry of magic all the way up to the fight with, between dumbledore and voldemort that that stuff is all spectacular and i remember watching this the first time in the cinema and thinking look i have no idea what's going on but what whatever is happening on screen right now looks bloody good Mm. Um, but it, it, it is it is it is it's always struck me as somewhat less interesting. Yes, Harry has has a confrontation with Voldemort and basically, uh, you know, kind of wins the that confrontation by telling Voldemort that he's a bit of a Nigel. Mm. Uh, but and, and look, that that's important and it kind of sets up the next few movies. Uh, but I've always thought I've always thought that this movie is really memorable for its for its first half. It's not just Umbridge, but it's the the entire set of themes, you know, institutions versus individuals, the the corruption of institutions and stuff that that have always made this movie a, a standout in the series for me. Simply because it it just deals with issues that that are so atypical for this sort of for this sort of genre picture that. Um, that even if it isn't the best movie in the franchise, even if it's almost certainly the least fun, and in the form of Dolores Umbridge gives us one of the most unpleasant and difficult to watch characters, um, I've always really, really respected what the, what this movie, in its very ambitious first half, has sought to do. Mm, mm, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I mean, I, I look for me, like I, I prefer the second half mainly because. Like I, I quite enjoy that classic storytelling. I, I think that classic. I, I think part of what makes Harry timeless is that classic sort of storytelling. But um, it's it's really interesting that you talk about that sort of uh, that sort of. I hadn't really thought about that in as clear in cl- as clear terms as, as you've put it. Right, which is like you're right. Like the first half of this movie is about this sort of institutional. Um, this sort of banal institutional evil, right? Um, I guess that also sets it up for the later films as well, where kind of the ministry kind of becomes completely ineffectual, right? It basically becomes like um, like a puppet, right? It gets completely infiltrated as an organisation. It basically fails to fulfil its purpose. Um, like in Half-Blood Prince, Deathly Hallows, the ministry is a joke. And I, I guess like this film kind of sets that up as well, yeah. Um, definitely, like, part of the reason why I think that um, second half is so spectacular. So, like, when I was watching this, I was saying to Mags that there are a few performances here that I, like, um, 
well, you know, the way the characters were written and the way they were performed, there were some performances here, that, there were some sort of characters here that I thought um, were really actually um, quite pivotal in sort of setting, like making that second half so great, right? Like, I, I think about, like, I know that there's a lot of action in that second half, but the way the actors are able to portray that action, so, for example, like Sirius, right? Like, the way Sirius dies, so big spoiler, obviously, Sirius dies, but the way Sirius dies in the second half of that film, I think is, like, I mean, I think it's it's really well done, right? Because Sirius, in the way Sirius fights, so like this second half of the film all of a sudden everything gets ratcheted up right like all these kids who are just playing around with like Expelliarmus and Reducto or whatever it is right they're somewhat successful but when it really comes down to it Lucius Malfoy is absolutely right when he says did you really believe that a bunch of kids could beat a bunch of trained wizards like wizards who have basically been fighting for a great portion of their lives right and then when the Order of the Phoenix come down and genuinely start confronting the Death Eaters, like, the level of the battle is just completely different from every anything that we've seen, right? I think visually that was really important, right? And then you get to kind of Sirius's death scene, and Sirius basically dies because he showboats, right? I love the fact that, you know, the way he moves around, the way Gary Oldman portrays him, right? Like, he kind of has these flourishes in his movement, right? He's not, uh, he doesn't do it economically. The, when he fights back to back with Harry, he has these flourishes and then he calls him Harry James, obviously, right? Because like, you know, Sirius is still stuck in this sort of the good old times when James and I fought back to back and we like sort of were badasses essentially, right? Like, he dies because he doesn't pay attention and he kind of just showboats and like Gary Oldman portrays him in like a real, like just the way he uses the wand reflects that personality, right? Um, so I thought that was like really well done. So it's not just the special effects, it's the way the actors are moving to reflect the personalities of those characters. I think the other, I've said before that I think Ralph Fiennes is amazing as Voldemort, right? And like on the rewatch, I think like every time he's on the screen I'm like yeah okay this guy has not phoned it in we know that the, a bunch of actors phone it in when they do sort of like largely CG villains because I imagine that a lot of Voldemort is prosthetic and there's an element of CG to him and that sort of thing right but R Ralph Fiennes is not phoning it in because when he fights as Voldemort it is like you see his character 100% when he fights right he is like it, the way he kind of like um, sort of the way he flourishes there's like this arrogance and narcissism about the way he fights right which is so much what Voldemort's character is I, I think the defining scene for me in this film is that bit when like um, Dumbledore and Voldemort are fighting and Voldemort summons the fire dragon and Dumbledore looks like he genuinely has a sense of like fear on his face right Voldemort never has that expression when he fights, he never feels like he he always just feels like he's like he feels like he's in control. He's loving it, right? He's loving the amount of power that he has. And then there's a scene when sort of um, Dumbledore attacks him with his like some sort of super powerful attack, and Voldemort kind of spreads his arms back, and there's this huge sort of explosion basically from him. And like I was like that scene just sticks in my head. Because, like, it's kind of like, as I said, it's like so, 
um, emblematic of who Voldemort is as a person. He just revels in the power. The way he sort of throws his hands back, he's like just someone who is reveling in, like, power, right? Um, yeah, anyway, like, I, I love the second half. I, I think it's really well acted. I think the CG is really good as well. And obviously, I think the thematic aspects of it kind of fit in. But agreed, it's probably not as um, sophisticated and adult as the, well, sophisticated and sort of shades of grey as the first part of the film, but I still love that attack on the Ministry scene, definitely. Yeah. Um, so, uh, what else, what else did I want to talk, what else did I want to talk about here? Um, can I ask the group, what do you guys think of the opening scene of this film? Jerry, like, you know, like, did you find that the opening scene was kind of, um, so the opening scene of this film is kind of like, um, like Harry is at some park around his house and visually it looks very different, right? Like, I'm not crazy, right? Like, visually it feels like kind of urban and then they run through this tunnel with all this graffiti and stuff. Like, did you yeah. find that weird, Jerry? That visually, yeah, yeah. that was such this, a distinct departure. Yeah, this was this was um, the opening scene was less little whinging and more uh, Baltimore. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. And and but the thing is, we've seen that playground before because that's the playground I think that um, that Harry walks past um, when he catches the night bus in Prison of Azkaban, and so that little merry-go-round. Um, is is there in that scene, but in this movie, even though it's daytime, it's actually much more desolate. Um, and Harry's just sitting there on a swing, completely looking destroyed and shattered by, um, we assume, the events of the previous movie. So immediately in its opening scene, this movie establishes itself as as more downbeat. And the message to the audience is, buckle up, guys. This this is not going to be fun for a while. Yeah. And it isn't. Like it just it just isn't fun. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, there's no there's no there's so little sense of whimsy and wonder, certainly in the first half of the movie. But what um, I find weird about that the seed though is that it transitions. So the Dementors come right, and he has to use the Patronus in the tunnel to save Dudley, right? But then it transitions back to the Dursley's house. And then all of a sudden, there's an element of Roald Dahl to it again, because his uncle is there. And then Dudley turns, like, because the way Dudley is portrayed right at the beginning of the film feels very realistic, right? There's like a realistic sort of bully aspect to him. And then it transitions to this Roald Dahl thing where Dudley becomes this bubbling, like, idiot sort of thing when he's back at home. Now, I'm just wondering, like, do you think that was intentional or unintentional, that sort of sharp divide <laughs> in those scenes? I, I, I felt it. I don't know if it was... Like, I wanted to raise it because I, I don't know if it was just me. Like, every time I've seen this film, I've definitely felt this weird tonal shift in that opening scene, and I kind of wanted to throw it out there and ask if anyone else felt that as well. Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly establishes sort of continuity and familiarity with some of the previous movies because we've seen so much of Vernon Petunia and Dudley Dursley being uh, being complete fools. So there's that, and it culminates in the 
in the talking letter that that tells Harry he's been explode he's been expelled from Hogwarts. So all that is kind of like the opening scenes of the f- of of or the opening sequences of the of the first couple of movies where we are in the sort of Roald Dahl world of the the the, the Dursleys being sort of casually cruel to Harry, mm. um, and then getting their sort of comeuppance when when something magically comes up and bites him in the ass. Uh, but and so that 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 is I think quite intentional. But in the very opening stages of the movie, you've got something that's re- you've got this scene that's really bleak, mm. visually, thematically bleak, um, and and so. You know, David Yates, who's the filmmaker for this, is really establishing the, the darker turn that this movie and the subsequent movies take. I think the reason there's a divide is you've got to have the Roald Dahl part because for the continuity, right? And whenever we see the Dursleys, they are so comic that mm. it just you know, that's just the way they are. But you had to have that darker aspect because you had to convey the crazy seriousness of dementors turning up in little whinging like you had to convey this is really what's happened is really bad and it's really like it's unknown of it's unheard of it's completely like something weird is happening to this world if the world is losing control right like the people in charge of the magical world are completely losing control and people are in serious risk like muggles are at serious everyone the you know the universe is at serious risk and i i think that's probably why it had such a menacing dark dismal kind of tone to it. it really supports supports the dementors looking scary but it also conveys that idea of something has really gone wrong now yeah and also like the movie hints at this but never actually resolves it but you know, Dumbledore does point out that Dementors are controlled by the Ministry, and so it seems it's very, very possible that someone within the Ministry, possibly the Minister himself, has sent the Dementors out basically to terrorise Harry in the Muggle world. Mm, mm, mm. That's really, really dark notion. The fact that you know these these horrible creatures that guard Azkaban that are controlled by the Ministry have been sent out basically to terrorise this kid. Mm. Uh, does it actually imply that the Ministry has actually been infiltrated by Voldemort's acolytes? Because you also have that scene where you see Lucius, like, you know, when Harry's being taken to the trial and Lucius is seen there, like, having, like, a very intimate chat with the Minister of Magic, right? So, yeah, look, I mean, in hindsight, it's like, potentially they're trying to convey this idea of actually even though you think that everything is okay like all these sort of unknown death eaters have actually already infiltrated the the ministry are using the existing processes of the the existing processes of the ministry to like sort of assert their agenda um yeah yeah um is there anything else we want to chat about in terms of this film Mags, Anager? No, I think we've covered it all. What, what do you guys think? Mags? Mags? Has oh. dropped off? No, 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 I'm here. No, no, I'm here. Hello. Um, um, no, not real. I guess the only other random thing which I thought was really unnecessary was um, Hagrid, because, you know, they have to include him somehow. And that interlude with his brother, Gorp. Yeah, I said the same thing. 
when we watched yeah. it. What is this thing for? What a waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> it's only as a device to get rid of Dolores halfway through the movie. Yeah, that's true. Mm. Yeah. I, I remember, like, yeah, I agree. So we're all we in Violet Agreement, right? We could have had the centaurs carry her off without group or whatever his name is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the worst thing was that his CG was probably the worst in the film as well, it was right? Bad. <laughs> it, it was pretty rubbish. Um, yeah. One, one, one other uh, interesting thing, because I always have to bring him up, um, is Snape, you get to find out in this movie that Harry's father wasn't, you know, the perfect hero when he was growing up, and that, you know, Snape, may, we may have reasons to sort of sympathise with Snape's position too. Mm, yes, true. It's the, it's the beginning of the humanisation of Snape. Yes. Yes. And also, it obviously feeds into this theme of everyone has shades of grey, right? That, you know, to this point, Harry has believed that his father is infallible, essentially, right? And then, you know, like, just as Sirius has said that, you know, we're kind of all shades of grey, you kind of realise, well, you know, James Potter was definitely a fallible person. He he was a bully. He was a bully. Yeah. 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 we don't we don't learn until the very end that that Snape was in love with Lily his entire life, hmm. right? Is that, is that is that seated earlier on in the books? Or it is seated it... in the books. Yeah, yeah. But but I think it's actually also really interesting, and I, and I know it's not explicitly spoken of, right? But the assumption is basically like that someone like James, even though he kind of when he was a child he was much crueler and was a bully, has like. The implication is basically James has kind of become a much more mature, better person as he's grown up, right? But yeah. I guess the thing also is that, you know, the casual cruelty that you have even when you're younger, those mistakes that you make, leave lasting scars on people regardless yeah. of the person that you become, right? And it's not to say that, you know, that like, you know, James can't be redeemed, right? But like, the fact that he bullied Sirius to this day still obviously has, like, lasting scars on Snape. And, like, Snape wears those scars on his sleeve because when he sees Harry, he sees James. He can't help himself, essentially, right? So those little cruelties, like, um, do have lasting effects, right? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, Mags, didn't you want to ask a question of this group about the owls? Oh, yes. (laughs) I thought it was very pertinent to this particular group. Thanks for the reminder. I forgot. There's one line, and I think you you, uh, alluded to it, Gerald, where Dolores Umbridge effectively says that school, um, that you only go to school for the purpose of passing your owls, not for an education. And so I wanted to put that question to the group as to whether you agree or disagree with Dolores Umbridge's statement. I think I think pointedly at Gerald and myself, probably, right? In particular, yes. I think I, think I don't I don't agree with, with Dolores uh, now. I have a sneaking suspicion that if you had asked me 25 years ago, I might have agreed with her. And I would echo Joe's sentiment as well. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you have the benefit of maturity and be like, you know, like school, you should have a balanced education. Back then, it was like... (laughs) 
back, back, yeah, back, back then, school was just something you did between exams. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad we're not in that environment anymore. <laughs> Speaking of lasting traumas, but. <laughs> Okay, um, look, thank you very much, everyone, for a quite an enjoyable chat about Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. Um, next time, we get to the one about Professor Snape, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. That's right, Is it, that's the next one, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay, so we'll be back in the next week or so, maybe two weeks, who knows. But we'll be back with Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. Thanks, everyone, for joining me tonight. Um, Say bye, everyone. Bye. Ciao. Bye.